Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke has 24 chapters. We're in Luke chapter 23, so we're making it. And we've been looking all the way to the end of the book, Luke 24, to have an affirmation that kind of gives us focus as we've been going through Luke's gospel. So let's say together this affirmation that's on the screen. Then Jesus said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And when it says there the Christ, it was necessary for him to suffer. Today we're looking when he did suffer on the cross and die for our sins. When you think back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the first three chapters of the Bible, it's amazing how comprehensive Uh, information, such comprehensive information is given to us in those first three chapters about God creating us, the sinful condition we find ourselves in, the promise of a Redeemer to come. Amazing in the book of beginnings, those chapters of beginnings. But when you look at Genesis 1 through 3, you discover that when earth was first created, God made Adam and Eve and placed them in a perfect garden. What do we call it? The Garden of Eden, right? Trees were everywhere, as well as everything that was beautiful, rivers and things. Trees were everywhere that bore fruit that was pleasant to the eyes and good for food. And we are told that there were two special trees in the garden. One was a tree of life, the tree of life, which partaking of guaranteed ongoing physical life. We're told all the way at the end of the book in Revelation 21 and 22 that those who live with God on a new earth will one day again have access to that tree of life. And if we're out and about and get a little boo-boo or something like that, the tree of life will be for the healing of us all and it will continue us living as well. This beautiful tree of life that the Bible talks about at the beginning and the end of the book. But there was another tree. And when you think about the simplicity of God's first commands to Adam and Eve, they said, basically, I'm putting you in that garden and you're going to tend and work it. So work was meaningful. Work is God's design for each of us to do fulfilling things that help uh, the glorify God and do good for our fellow man on earth. They were to do meaningful work six days and then they were to have a seventh day of rest. They were to observe that. So they were commanded to tend the garden, to uh, basically be stewards of the earth's resources and to rest one day in seven. Uh, but they were told one thing they couldn't do. There was another tree in the garden. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they ate of the fruit of that tree, sin and death would become realities on earth. Just one thing prohibited, and yet they still blew it. And if we were Adam and Eve there, we probably would have as well. Now, when we look at those first three chapters, we see something that just fires the imagination. In the cool of each day... God himself would visit the Garden of Eden and he would walk and talk with Adam and Eve. Think about it. 
a daily appointment, a daily time with God physically present there with you to get to enjoy that fellowship. And of course, that great hymn, he walks with me and he talks with me, right? How, how awesome that must have been. It was paradise. It was a garden of delights. That's what the word paradise means. But then even Adam gave in to Satan's lies and twisting of God's word, and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they believed it would be in their best interest to disobey what God had said. Did you hear what I just said? They believed it would be in their best interest to disobey what God had said. That is never true. It will never be true that it's in your best interest to see something God says in the Word and do what you want to do and said. It is always a mistake you're making, a sin against God, but also one that will have poor ongoing consequences in your own life. When they ate the fruit of that tree, they were filled with things they had not felt before, like a sense of shame, a sense of blame, a sense of alienation from God. Physical death was now guaranteed to come for them one day. Spiritual death happened instantly in that moment of sin. Now, we read in Genesis 3 that God himself acted to provide a covering for their naked selves in the midst of their shame. He probably had to make the first sacrifice to do that, to kill an animal and take its clothing and he was able to cover over their sin and shame with that covering. The word atone actually means to cover. So in Psalm 32, when David is rejoicing that God has forgiven him after he confessed his sin, it says, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Same word is back in Genesis chapter 3 there. But God also gave the very first prophecy that one day the seed of the woman, a descendant of Adam and Eve, the Messiah, would bruise or crush the head of Satan, but receive a bruise in his heel while doing it. Now that they had a sin nature, God had to cut off access to the paradise of the garden and to that tree of life. Because if they ate of that tree in their cursed state, in that sinful state, they would go on living as cursed people on earth day after day, month after month, year after year, and there would be nothing worse to have that sense of being cursed and not being able to die. Uh, I think about Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Where you have those pirates in there, and they want to die but can't die. And that's what all of us would have been like, kind of walking zombies if that had been, uh, if God had not in his grace banished them from the Garden of Eden and he placed a cherubim angel. Wonder what the cherubim angel looked like. He placed a cherubim angel at the entrance to paradise with a flaming sword that turned every way, guarding the way to the tree of life. Paradise that they had experienced with God day after day was now cut off to them and inaccessible to those living on earth. And that was the situation the tree of life at the beginning, the tree of life at the end. And that was the situation until Jesus uh, was hung up on a cruel tree of death, the cross, so that he could receive that curse on our behalf and all who placed their faith and trust in him could have their sins forgiven. Look at Luke chapter 23. And we read that he was led away with two criminals to be executed. And they came to the place called Calvary. Now, folks, crucifixion was incredibly painful. We get our word excruciating from it, right? I mean, it, it was just a horrible means of execution. 
We tend to wear crosses as jewelry. We tend to have nice podiums like this. But to bring it home for us more, it would be like if this instead of a cross was an electric chair. We immediately recognize an electric chair as an instrument of death. If I had that around my neck, people would say, why are you wearing an electric chair around your neck? And it would be a great way of talking about the execution that happened on our behalf uh, there at Calvary. Um, Now, the place was called Calvary. That's the Latin. All of our hymns come from, it was Calvaria in Latin. We bring it into English as Calvary. All the great hymns in the book speak of what Jesus did at Calvary. We could sing hymns about what he did at Golgotha. That's the Aramaic, the Hebrew Aramaic from the Syrian influence there. And um, we could say at the, the, uh, uh, what is it here? Cranium, from which we get our word cranium from, right? We, We could sing of what Jesus did at the cranium. It means skull. And some have suggested suggested that the hill itself that Jesus died on looked kind of like a skull. Others have said, no, it really reflected what was happening there, that as uh, these people were up on the crosses and they would die, their bodies would decay, and eventually their skull would fall right off their head. And so there might have been a pile of skulls there at this place of execution. Uh, You know, when you're like this and you're nailed to the cross, you can't just scratch, can you? You can't come over here and scratch. If birds are coming and picking at your head, you can't shoo them away. And the birds are smart. They figured that out, you know. And as the person was half dead and half alive, or if they were almost all the way dead, those varmints would start to come, those vultures, etc., and could pick at them the incredible pain of the cross. Well, the crossbeam Simon the Cyrenian had carried was fastened to the longer beam that the soldiers had carried there, and they were fastened together. It was laid on the ground. It was an implement of torture. And Jesus' arms would have been stretched across that beam. Maybe they tied them together first, and then they took where his palms were, and they nailed long nails through his palms into the wood. And you can imagine the excruciating pain of that. He'd already been tortured and it was happening right there. And then they would have taken his heels and at the uh, long beam, they would have done the same thing with his heels, driving through both heels into the wood and he was not going anywhere. It's interesting that in Isaiah 49, 16, the Lord had said, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Jesus' great love made him willing to go to that cross for us, and he had in his mind as he was dying the name of every single person who would ever turn to him in faith. He's omniscient that way. He knows who will respond to the freeness of the gospel offer and turn to Christ. And so what Jesus did on the cross is efficient to save everyone on earth, everyone who's ever lived, Uh, I'm sorry, it's sufficient, sufficient to save everyone who's ever lived, but it's efficient only for those who will turn to him and believe. So Isaiah 53, 5 said the Messiah would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. There was the slightest of pegs that would have been between his legs to support his buttocks a little. But as crucifixion wore on, he would have to raise up because his lungs would have been filling with fluid. And just to breathe, he would have had to raise up to try to get that next breath. And so it's very sad. It it, it was a horrible way to die. It sometimes took days to die of hunger or exhaustion. And uh, always hours, sometimes even days. You know, when you think about 
It wasn't seconds like execution in an electric chair. It wasn't minutes like when an evildoer gets a lethal injection, you know, and dies somewhere in the country for their uh, actions. It took hours, sometimes days. Well, it involved not only excruciating pain, but it also involved public humiliation. There was a reason they were doing this publicly. They wanted to humiliate you. There was nowhere to go. There was nowhere to hide. There you were, almost naked, raised up for all going on by the very busy road to sea. Uh, and, and think about that, you know. Uh, not only those that were gathered to actually support you or to see you there to make sure you died, but also passers-by. You can imagine a child saying, what's happening over there, mommy? And the mom saying, you're not old enough to understand. I'll explain it to you later and shepherding you on as you go. And up there on the cross, they would have been mindful of all the different ways they were being treated and reacted to. Um, Deuteronomy 21:23 said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It was meant to be public humiliation. It was meant to be something that would dissuade you from being an evildoer yourself. And on top of the cross, they would have the charge there. This, is a, this one's a thief. This one's a murderer. This one is involved in this sin or that sin. And so everyone knew the consequences of that action would be if you were caught, you'd be put there on a cross and punished before the world to see. Jesus is, of course, said the king of the Jews. And we know that the Jewish leader says, wait a second, say he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said in one more act of defiance toward the religious leaders, oh no, what I've written, I have written. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Well, Jesus' cross was fittingly placed in the center of the other two thieves that were crucified that day, the, other e the evildoers that were there. Now, as we go through this, I'm going to read you three or four quotes from guys that lived over 1,500 years ago. I just got tickled by reading these old dead guys, you know, who are now with the Lord. And uh, first one from Ambrose of Milan. The very place of the cross is in the middle. It's conspicuous to all. What a great reflection. It was in the middle, conspicuous to all. And that's fitting because everyone in this room today Everyone who will watch online, everyone who has ever lived is either on one side of the cross or the other, spiritually speaking. And we know that uh, originally uh, they were all on the crucify him side of the cross, even the two evildoers. Matthew and Mark says as they got up there, they, the, the thieves on both sides were joining in in the mockery of Jesus. Luke alone tells us the great story that the one repented, and I'm glad he did through his meticulous research that the Holy Spirit put into the Word of God for us. Now, in verse 34, we see that as Jesus is first on that cross, it's the first of seven statements from the cross, Jesus appealed to a higher authority to forgive us for killing him. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Have you ever stopped to think about that? We yelled, crucify him. I don't want to think about my own sin. Crucify him. Get him out of here. Get him away from me. I don't want to have him be the object of my thoughts. We yelled, crucify him. He yelled down from the cross, Father, forgive them. He could have said, Father, consume them. They're killing me, but I'm innocent. Kill them, Father. And it's entirely possible everybody there could have dropped dead in that moment. The book of Colossians says that in Jesus, all things hold together. And if he chose to stop allowing that to happen, our bodies could disintegrate into nothingness right here, into puddles of nothingness. We yelled, crucify him. He said, Father, forgive them. 
Now, Isaiah 53, 12 had prophesied that the Messiah would actually make intercession for the transgressors, that somehow the Messiah, as part of what he did for humanity, would pray for us sinners. And this prayer, we can think of it, it was actually answered in two very specific ways. God did not treat them or us as the murderers we are, but instead opened the way of salvation to us. This act alone, the fact that it's our sins that put him there, it's our evil deeds that he was atoning for, that he was covering, that alone would make us guilty enough to go to hell because rebellious sin against the Father deserves to be judged, right? And what greater... uh, sin can there be than taking God's gift of love and showing such scorn and hatred for it that you'd kill that act of love rather than receive it. Uh, I love Hebrews 7.25 says, therefore he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We know that while he was on earth, Jesus prayed for his disciples. John 17 is the greatest example of that. We know that from the cross, he was interceding. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And we're told in heaven now, the risen Lord, the ascended Lord is at the right hand of the Father and he's praying for all those who will ever know him through faith. Isn't that awesome? He interceded for us. And so the second way his prayer has been answered, of course, is that even there on the cross, someone turned to him. And we can think of several someones. It looks like Simon the Cyrenian turned to Christ in that moment. It looks like we know the thief on the cross did. It looks like a centurion guard did. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus uh, may have. So it's pretty powerful as the text un- the texts unfold. But 50 days later, 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost. And a few chapters after that, a great number of priests believed. These priests that mocked him later converted to Christ. They recognized their sins had killed Jesus and he had risen from the dead and they turned to him in faith. But the good news for us is that we're told by researchers that 3,000 people trust Christ every hour around the world today. Isn't that great? So during the time of this worship service, 3,000 people around the world will have come to faith in Christ, which is very, very exciting. Jesus' prayer continually being answered. The word for forgive is the same one we usually use when forgiveness is talked about in the Bible. It's the word ephiomi or ephesus. And it carries the idea of pardon, remission, or setting aside of a penalty. The idea of release, the idea of being set free, the idea of liberty. Uh, You know, when a prisoner finally gets out, they've served their time and gets out, they're released. I think about it being January and, uh, you know, where uh, President Trump is finishing up his term and then President-elect Biden's going to come in and that sort of thing. And during this month, President Trump will, uh, there's a lot of people around the country praying that they'll get a pardon from President Trump because if they have that, nothing else can happen to them no matter what they've done, right? And that's what Jesus, that's what this word conveys here, the word Jesus uses for forgive. In Luke 4.18, Jesus spoke of how he as the Messiah would bring liberty to the captives. Same word, liberty. In Luke 4.39, when Jesus uh, rebuked the fever in the lady, it says it left her. Same word, the fever left her. And in Luke 5.20, when Jesus assured the forgiven man, man, your sins have left you, you're forgiven. Same word, your sins have left you. Acts 10.43 says, to him... All the prophets witness that through his name, the name of Jesus, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. You believe in Jesus, the penalty for your sins is set aside because another has paid for it. And that's key. We will not get to heaven 
and look back and see that anything was left undone on earth. Every sin ever committed in human history is dealt with one of two places. On the cross for those who will let Jesus be their atoning sacrifice. But if you reject Christ, the wrath of God has not been moved from you to Jesus. It remains on you and they will be dealt with at the great white throne judgment and then forever incredibly justly in the lake of fire. That's why John 3.36 says, the one who believes has life, comma, but the one who does not believe will not see life. Instead, God's wrath abides on them, remains on them. They're still under that judgment that they don't need to be under because of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus is willing to forgive. If you're willing to change your mind, humble yourself before God, agree with God about your sin problem, admit your need of Jesus. But never forget the cost, the precious blood of Jesus shed for us. Hebrews 9.22 repeats Leviticus and says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no setting aside of the penalty without somebody stepping forward to pay it. Praise God he did. Well, even as Jesus hung on the cross for our sins, there were different reactions to what Jesus was doing. We see that in verses 34 through 38. The second part of verse 34 says, they, the soldiers, they were dividing his garments and casting lots for them. These uh, soldiers that were on execution duty had just an awful job. Can you imagine that your job is executing one person after another and not in a clean way like lethal injection where it's all kind of bland and things? No, it was through death on the cross. And for each one, it would take hours or if not days for those folks to die. There'd be grieving relatives to deal with. All these different things. It was a horrible duty, but it was their job. And as they did three at a time or five at a time or seven at a time, and the days went by one after the other, there was a lot of these crucifixions in the Roman Empire. As they did their job day after day, you can see that they got hardened hearts. They were cynical they, uh, they wanted to do anything they could to avoid death just staring them in the face. And so what did they do? They gambled. They, they cast lots for Jesus' clothes, right? And they were doing anything they could to uh, keep their minds off of what was happening before them and the spiritual implications of it. And it reminds me of a lot of people today, right? We'll do anything to think, not think about death. We'll do anything not to think about spiritual things. And then all of a sudden, a global pandemic comes around, shuts everything down for a little bit of time, and in some cases, a lot of time, and we're forced to think about the reality that we too could die of this or something else, and that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. For individuals, there's the, oh my goodness, I have been told I have cancer, or I have a limited time to live, and, and what does that mean? I, I need to make sure I'm ready to die. And not being ready to die, we're told in the book of Hebrews that people all their lives live under fear of death. Those that don't know the Lord, all of their lives live under the fear of death that's coming, and that may be you. I remember, even as a high schooler, the prospect of death before was something that consumed my thinking a lot of times as I went to dark places often and even considered taking my own life. It was the kind of thing that you thought of. But people do everything they can not to think about it. So they'll gamble, they'll commit an affair, they'll do whatever it takes. And these soldiers were doing whatever they could just to not think about it for a while, the gruesome reality of death and what comes after. 
In verse 35, we read that the crowds, the people were looking on. That would have included those grieving women who were convinced that Jesus was who he said he was and that a great travesty was unfolding before them. That would have included people like Simon the Cyrenian who had been pressed into service to bear the cross there and was now considering what this all meant, included John the disciple, the only disciple that we know of that didn't depart from Jesus during that time. The other disciples were scared and hiding, maybe looking on from a distance, but certainly afraid for many different reasons. There were passers-by on the busy road into town, and all were pondering what this all meant or choosing not to think about it as they rushed their inquisitive children by. We live in a day where there's lots of things that can consume our attention so we don't think about that which is eternal and spiritual things. The beginning of a new year gives us the opportunity once again to say, is indeed Christ above all in my life? Is indeed my only hope of going to heaven after I die what he did for me there on the cross? Well, we also read that the religious rulers sneered. The word's an interesting word. They turned their noses up. They turned their noses up at Jesus. They were sneering at him, and they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is truly the Christ. Oh, he could have. He could have called 10,000 angels to deal with the situation. He could have just popped himself off of there. Uh, He could have, but if he had stopped to save himself in that moment, the physical pain, he would have not been able to save us. And so it wasn't the soldiers that kept him there. It wasn't the, all the things that were pressing into him there on the, you know, the, not, the, the, the nails. It was his great love, of course, that held him there. Uh, Matthew and Mark let us know that both criminals originally joined in mocking Jesus. And so they, you see this progression right here in Luke's gospel, the religious leaders, ah, let's see if he can save himself. And then the soldiers repeat that as they offer the anesthetic of the sour wine. Jesus refused to take that because he wanted to be lucid in these moments and speak at least these seven words from the cross. But then even we're told the criminals joined in and, you know, um, Matthew and Mark say that they did that before one of them had a change of heart. And in his change of heart, it meant the difference in his eternal destination. Well, in verses 39 to 43, we see Jesus promises eternal life to those who turn to him. This is hardly a great climate for a soul to be one to Jesus. But one thing you love about the scriptures is periodically Jesus just shows up, right? And even after he went to heaven, he came back in a vision to get Paul, right? Because Paul was such a terrible sinner. Jesus said, hey, I'm going to go down there and take care of this one myself, right? And Jesus loves people more than anything, right? And so even while this is his horrible moment of excruciating pain on the cross, he has a chance right here and he takes it up to offer eternal life to a repentant sinner. Uh, So the last verses in our passage for today bring us back to Jesus and these two criminals. And um, they had become part of a fellowship nobody would want to be a part of. A fellowship is when you're sharing the same experience, right? In the church, we fellowship together as we worship the Lord and serve him. Well, this was the fellowship of those who were being crucified, a club nobody would want to be part of. But all of a sudden, in this moment, they had this very common experience. This past year, you know, I think about uh, when we went through the cancer journey, Elizabeth had it. She didn't want to be part of that fellowship, but became part of it and learned a lot. I didn't want to be part of the fellowship of supporting a a spouse that has cancer, but I got to be in that one. And that has taught us certain things that we're able to share with others today and just a greater sensitivity. 
So this past month or so, it's happened with COVID, right? Uh, you know, with me going through the time of having COVID and now still dealing with the lasting fatigue like some people do on the other side of that. There's clubs you don't want to be part of is what I'm saying. And these guys were part of a club nobody would want to be a part of. Isaiah 53, 12 says the Messiah would be numbered with transgressors. And here he was, thief, Jesus, thief, evildoer, Jesus, evildoer, right? He was numbered with them, even though he himself was not a transgressor of anything, anything the law that God had given. They had both initially mocked Jesus, but then one had a change of heart. Let's look at verse 39. It says, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. We know from verse 36 and verse 35, he was just parroting what he heard these religious leaders saying, and the soldiers too. You see a lot about this young man in this, or older man or whatever he was in this. This guy was given over to the spirit of the age and peer pressure. You know that when he was around all his evildoer friends, he had done evil and he'd been caught doing it and now was going to die because of it, right? Well, now here he is and the mood of the crowd has shifted. Now he's around a crowd and people are shouting things at Jesus. The religious leaders are and the soldiers are. And this guy who was an evildoer and had no reason to hate Jesus simply switched crowds because of peer pressure, right? These religious leaders, they would have hated this guy and he would have hated them. But now to try to get their approval, he joins the crowd in mocking Jesus. And it still happens today, doesn't it? It happens in schools. It happens in workplaces. It happens through media and other things like that. Uh, You know, these are days where it costs you something to believe and be a Christian. And we're often accused of hate just for loving the Lord and the scriptures and living like Christians have for 2,000 years. And many are saying, you know what, I don't want to be not liked by people, so I'll change what I believe about the Word of God. Or what I know is sin, I'll say is okay, because that's what a church down the road is doing. You know, the sexual ethic is a big one, right? You know, uh, we know from the Scriptures, God's only use for human sexuality is a man and woman within the commitment of marriage. Whether it's homosexuality, bestiality, adultery, fornication, whatever, those are departures from God's word that are supposed to be repented of by those who take their faith seriously. And we're departing from those things. Well, this fella, the crowd that he had been was the evildoer crowd. Now he's with a crowd that's taunting Jesus. And now he disagrees with them about everything. He joins them in taunting Jesus. He was totally given in to peer pressure. The other thief would have been mocking at first but then realized that something was different about Jesus. Look at verses 40 and 41. It says, But the other answered that thief and said, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, we are getting what we deserve, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. You might want to underline that or circle it. This man has done nothing wrong. And then the awesome verse 42 He looks at Jesus, and if indeed they were in a semicircle, they would have been able to make eye contact. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. What was this guy doing? This guy stopped evaluating himself based on the other evildoer or the crowds below or really any man. He came to understand in that moment the sinner that he was. And as he looked at Jesus and compared himself to Jesus, he realized Jesus was completely different, that he was just, that he was innocent. And that will be the turning point in each and every one of our lives here today and watching online too. 
will be when we stop comparing ourselves to others. There's a lot of church members who often judge other people, whether it's for racial reasons or for this reason or that reason. And what they're doing is they're saying, hey, we're people and I'm comparing myself to them and I like what I see. I think I'm doing all right. But what the humble person that God's going to work in their life, God says, I can work in the kind of person that will humble themselves before me and tremble at my word. When a person, instead of comparing themselves to others and finding judgment with others, when they instead will look at Jesus and see how perfect he is and realize, compared to Jesus, the ultimate man, I fall short, God says, now I can do something for this person. This guy realized who he was, and he turns to Christ, and he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now, we're told that on tombstones in first century Jerusalem and throughout the Roman Empire, where Jews were, there would have been a remembrance of the great doctrine of the one day coming resurrection, right? Job talks about it in Job 19. I know my Redeemer lives, and at the end I will see him on the earth. One of the oldest scriptures, Job 19, he says that. And this, we were told that on the tombstones in Jerusalem, sometimes remember me was written as a prayer crying out to Yahweh saying, remember me when the resurrection time comes. You remember John 11? Martha's talking to Jesus, Lazarus is in the tomb, and she says, I know that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. I know that's going to happen later on in keeping with good teaching from our Jewish teachers going all the way back to the beginning books of the Bible. We see that same hope in Psalm 37 where it says, evildoers will be cut off, but I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. One day after death, I'll be in a new body on a new earth. And you see that hope presented. And certainly that's what this fellow was doing here. He's taking the little bit he knows and he's saying, okay, remember me, Lord, when you come to initiate that time, the time of the new earth, the new paradise, and all those different things. I like what Maximum of Turin said in 423. This is a remarkable thing. The thief confesses the one whom the disciple denied. So he's talking about Judas there who knew so much after walking with Jesus yet denied him. And here's this thief with his limited information saying, save me, Lord, remember me when you come to do the next thing. Now think about these two thieves for a moment. What made the difference for them between going to heaven and going to hell? They had both been arrested for the same crime. They had been tried for the same crime. They were dying for the same crime on their crosses. There wasn't any difference between them. Both were guilty evildoers, yet one is going to get to go to paradise and the other is going to wind up in hell. What was the only difference between them? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. A recognition that as sinners, I need to turn to the Lord to remember me and be saved. And that was the difference. And it'll be the difference for you too. You say, Danny, you don't know what I've done. And the good news is I don't need to know what you've done. I know what Jesus did for you there on the cross. I know from this passage and others how Jesus responds to those who place their faith and trust in him. You say, Danny, I'm not a good person. (laughs) Neither was the thief on the cross. He was dying as an evildoer with his charge publicly presented to everybody there. Be like him. Humbly acknowledge your need and ask Jesus to save you. You say, Danny, I haven't done enough good things. Neither had the thief on the cross. This is his moment of salvation. He doesn't have time to do anything for the Lord except be in this passage to give everyone who's ever lived, even to the final moments of their deathbed, encouragement 
that even at the very last moment, if you turn to Christ in faith, he'll receive you. My goodness, he didn't have time left to do any good deeds for the Lord before he died. He didn't have time to get baptized or join a church, all good things, figure out what your spiritual gifts are and use those, begin tithing and giving and doing all kinds of great stuff. He didn't have time to do anything, but he asked Jesus to save his guilty soul, and Jesus did. And that's why we want to look just at the end here at verse 43. What today means for those who turn to Christ for salvation It says, Jesus said to him, assuredly, the word there is amen. Amen, may it be so. Amen. I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Or is it, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, as in right now. It could be either one of those things, depending on where you put your comma when you're translating it. As Jesus hung on the tree of death, he said to this thief, Amen, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise was the word used of the Garden of Eden in the Greek Old Testament. It is used of the third heaven where God lives in 2 Corinthians 12.4. The tree of life, we read in Revelation 20, 20, 21 and 22, is accessible again to believers on the new earth. So the Bible begins with access to the tree of life being cut off because of human sin. The Bible ends with access to the tree of life being granted, and here in the middle in the Gospels, we see Jesus making that possible because of what he did on the tree of death. He was cursed so we could be blessed. Now, whether or not Jesus intended to mean that very day or the reserved place in paradise believers are guaranteed, that's something believers have always discussed. Look at this quote from the 400s. Heschelis of Jerusalem said, Some indeed read this way, Truly I tell you today, and put a comma, then they add, You will be with me in paradise. So instead of today you'll be with me in paradise, it's I say to you today, I'm saying to you now, later on you'll be with me in paradise. Either way. But I see it more of Jesus making a theological statement. And I see that because we are promised this same thing as the rest of the scriptures unfold. December 16th, 1984 is the day I turned to Christ for salvation. And that day, I went from being a sinner without hope apart from Christ to having a reserved place in heaven that very day. I've had a ticket that when I die, I can present to the Lord faith in Christ. That means I'll be with him forever because I have transferred my trust to him rather than keeping it in myself. Ephesians 1.20 says this about Christ's work on the cross and resurrection. It says, which he worked in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The word seated is kathiso. So Jesus, having finished his work on the cross and then rising from the dead, it's like a gymnast who sticks the landing. That's what his resurrection meant. It's a total 10 performance for sinners. He ascended to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us and one day he'll return and set up his earthly kingdom and it will be paradise when he sets it up on earth, when there's a new earth that Jesus reigns from. But look at what he says just one chapter later, Ephesians 2, 6. And God also raised us up together with and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And there the word is seated with together, and it's sig kathiso. It's the same word as in Ephesians 1.20 with the word with put with it. So Christ has been raised up and is seated with the Father. We, right now in the present tense, have a reserved place with God in heaven because of that. Faith in Christ guarantees eternal life with Christ. The tree of death leads back to the tree of life. Aren't you glad? 
Let me give you a couple more ancient comments, and we're just about done here. A guy in Syria, Ephraim the Syrian, in the 300 said, the hands that Adam stretched out toward the tree of knowledge, breaking the commandment, were unworthy to stretch out toward the tree of life to receive the gifts of the God they had despised. Our Lord took those human hands and attached them to the cross so that they might kill their killer and arrive at his marvelous life. You will be with me in the garden of delights. And then Jerome, the same one who translated the Bible into Latin, around 400 said, that flaming, flashing sword was keeping paradise safe. No one could open the gates that Christ had closed. The thief was the first to enter with Christ. His great faith received the greatest of rewards. In Luke 16, we read that after Lazarus died, he was escorted by the angels to Abraham's bosom. In this passage, Jesus says, we're both about to die, but today you'll be with me in paradise. And you're going to be mine from this day and forevermore. And as they got to where the final place that the redeemed are with Christ and with the heavenly father, there might've been that flaming sword to keep them, but forevermore, when a person believes the angel steps aside and says, come on back into paradise and have access to the tree of life forever and ever and ever. Because the tree of death, when you embrace it, when you cherish the old rugged cross, leads to the tree of life. There's a saying I like. It says, the average American is being crucified between two thieves. Their regrets about yesterday and their fears about tomorrow. And I have found that true in my years of dealing with people that people are caught up with things they regret that they haven't brought to Jesus to get forgiven from the past, and they're caught up with their worries, fears, and anxiety of what tomorrow brings, and it cripples them in the present tense, in the now. But for the believer, it's not yesterday and tomorrow that matters. For the believer, there's only two days that matter. The first one is the day that you make your peace with God. For me, that was December 16th, 1984. Because the Bible says at that very moment, I was transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I was transferred from the domain of Satan with him being the one that owned me to being redeemed, to being bought by Jesus and brought to the kingdom of the dear son Jesus, right? And for the rest of my life, I will discover what's true of me because of that day, that I'm adopted, that I'm forgiven, that I've got the indwelling Holy Spirit, that God has a purpose and plan for my life. Oh, we rejoice in that day when the peace with God is made. But the other day that matters is today. The eternal present we have with Christ, the eternal present tense he calls us to, this very day he has an impact for you to make. Today, the difference I can make for Jesus that will last forever and ever as I minister to people. It's the first Sunday of the new year. And I hope that if you're being tormented by those two days, yesterday and tomorrow, you'll become the kind of believer who celebrates everything that's true of you because you're in Christ, because of your testimony of turning to him in faith, and that you'll live for today in the Christian sense of the word to make an impact for him that will have consequences out into eternity. Will you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. 
There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.